0: A few notes about today's episode. First, please be aware that there are some curse words that we have not bleeped out. Secondly, as I am recovering from a bout of laryngitis, I have invited a special guest to come and be the host for today's show. And so I will go ahead and turn it over to my very good friend, Erica Toei. Hello, and thank you, Monique. Thanks for having me today. Thank you, Erica. Hello, and welcome to Voices of Recovery a podcast about life after addiction from serenity lane today we're talking to kimber h who recently celebrated six years of recovery she has accomplished a lot over these last six years including unlocking one particular
1: achievement I remember the first time someone ever called me reliable, I was shocked. I was like, are you sure? Like, do you know me? Like, have you met me? Because I am the opposite of reliable. Um, They talk about it, too, um, about, like, when you get sober, how, like, um, like, things will happen beyond your wildest dreams. And it's true. Like, if I had gotten everything I wanted when I got sober, I would have sold myself short. So, my name's Kimber, and my sobriety date is January 5th, 2013. From an early age,
0: Kimber knew two things about drinking. It made things more fun, and she wanted to be better at it.
1: I grew up in an alcoholic home, um, but it wasn't an alcoholic home in, in the characteristic sense. There was no, like, physical abuse, and actually, the alcoholic in my life who is my dad was more of an entertainer and so I remember like registering very early on that alcohol and drugs were were this fun thing and they made you fun and and without them you were very like stressed out and then I had my mother who didn't drink and use definitely not in the same way that my dad did but she was kind of the fun ruiner you know she was always trying to find uh, the bottles he was hiding or, you know, figure out what he was up to. And there's like this control piece that came from her, but um, which of course, you know, makes sense. Like, it's very difficult to be in a relationship with someone in active addiction. But yeah, I just remember er registering very early on that drugs and alcohol were a way to like de-stress and they made you fun and they made you more exciting. I, I remember feeling like very early on, like just uncomfortable in my skin, but I didn't handle that in the same way that, you know, maybe other people did. Like, I, I wasn't introverted. I never was perceived that way. I kind of overcompensated with this like gregariousness. Um, the first time I, I drank alcohol, I also used substances. Um, and my first experience drinking and using was very interesting. I was 10 years old and my mom has a lot of mental health issues, and I'm not sure the logistics of what happened that night, but it seemed that she was attempting suicide, and it was a very scary experience, and I remember the following night, I stayed at my friend's house, and so, like, the first time I ever drank and used, it was to cope with something. Um, Like, I remember making that, like, connection like I'm going to do this to relieve pain from this situation and my friend who I'd spent the night with she had one drink and fell asleep you know went to bed Um, but I remember for me I kept like sneaking out of the room to fill up more vodka and then going back to the room and drinking more and I just kept doing that like there wasn't like a stop button for me like from the first time and I remember, well, I don't really remember this, but I guess what had happened is I had filled the vodka cup with some water and put it back in the freezer. And so, and I don't remember the rest of the night. So the first time I drank and used it was to cope. I blacked out, I passed out, and the next day I woke up to consequences because I guess when you put water in the alcohol, it, like, freezes. So her parents caught us. Um, so I got in trouble. And I remember thinking after that, like, This was so fun, I just have to, like, learn how to do this better. Kimber
0: got sober young. By 15, her drinking and using were already beginning to escalate. And then, at 16, she lost one of her best friends to suicide. Things got worse from there.
1: And I was just a tornado for the remainder of my, you know, years in Eugene. I managed to somehow graduate high school despite, like, experimenting with Hard drugs and mostly stimulants. That's what I experimented with, and and I drank whenever I could. I mean, alcohol is my, um, that's my kryptonite. You know, despite what other drugs I got into, I mean, that was always a constant, and that was always the thing I wanted. And usually, whenever I used other substances, it was to enhance the alcohol experience, so that I could drink more and drink longer. And I remember when I graduated high school, it was, t- or around when I was graduating. It was time to apply for colleges. Um, and I got into some good schools in Oregon, but I just remember thinking like, you know, I've had all of this trauma here in Eugene, like um, And you know, I'm not the problem. Like the city that I grew up in and and these people that I grew up with and the pain that I've experienced from losing my friend and my and my family not being able to show up for me in the way I think they should, um, that's the problem. And so I moved to Arizona. And I remember thinking, like, I'm going to do things differently here. I'm not going to get involved with drugs and alcohol, and I'm going to, you know, play sports and go to classes. I didn't attend a single class in college. Um, and within 24 hours of being down there, I met people that were just like me. Um, if not worse, they were into harder drugs and doing crazier shit than I'd ever even, like, fathomed, you know? Um, And it got really scary down there. That's where I got into opiates. Um, I was hanging out with some people that were legitimately dangerous. Um, And when I left Arizona a few months later, it wasn't because, even necessarily because I wanted to, it's because I, I didn't feel safe there. And I'd burned so many bridges and had just surrounded myself with the most dangerous, like, criminal addicts. So I came back to Oregon and I, you know, made a few half-assed attempts to um, go back to college. Um, But I I couldn't do anything. I couldn't um, hold down a job. I couldn't, like, show up for classes. I remember my dad owned a restaurant for a period of time and he gave me a job there as a dishwasher. I'm like the owner's daughter, right? And I got fired from that. Um and I remember my way out, I had been I was coming down off of meth. I didn't want to be at work and I remember like slamming a bunch of dishes onto the ground and telling the manager at the time like I'm too good for this job. I am above this and it's like really? You're a fucking low-life tweaker working as a dishwasher at your dad's restaurant and you just got fired. Like, I, it's just so funny how we can be, like, like, in the lowest possible place and still just think, like, there's nothing wrong with us, you know? I'm
0: not much, but I'm all I can think about. This is something you may hear from people in recovery when describing the pendulum swing between grandiosity and self-hate. Alcohol and drugs fit well into that space, soothing
1: hurt feelings and providing liquid courage. Of course, not until this point did I realize that drugs were a problem for me. Um, But my dad had kind of—I'd been living with my parents, and they'd kicked me out for a period of time. And— I remember going on, like, a very long, like, meth bender and kind of going into a psychosis, which hadn't happened to me up until that point. Um, And I started, like, you know, just wanting to clean everything. I I don't even know how much I actually successfully cleaned anything other than just, like, moved my furniture from, like, one side of the room to the other. And I decided that I needed a comforter for my parents' house. So at, like, four in the morning, I went and broke into my parents' house Where I wasn't supposed to be, and I remember um, like hearing voices and like really wanting to like figure out where that was coming from. I mean, it scared me, you know. Um, And what ended up happening was I started like breaking every single dish, like in my parents' house, and my dad coming down and being like, "What the? What are you doing here? Why are you in our house?" Um, And like, you know, trying to explain to someone like I'm here. Like, I'm breaking all these dishes because I'm hearing voices. Like, that's not, like, a like legitimate response. Like, people that are not high on drugs don't understand that. And I remember sleeping for a few days and waking up and just being like, this is bad. You know, like, I can't continue to do this. Like, the illusion had kind of been smashed that, um, that this behavior was okay. And so that was my first—that was in 2012— And I remember wanting sobriety after that for the first time. But I didn't know what sobriety was. I had no idea. Um, So I thought that sobriety meant, like, drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana. In a three-week time period, I'm, like, 19 years old, going from drinking half a fifth a day to a fifth a day to half a half-gallon a day to a half-gallon a day of Monarch gin— which is like the crummiest alcohol ever. I think it was like $8 for a half gallon back then. You know, my mom and I have always kind of had a tumultuous relationship. She has a tough time wanting to take care of herself, and for a while so did I, and it just made our interactions explosive. But at that point in time, I had— I think I'd had like monthly dinners with her, and I remember her getting on me for being drunk at them, Or like we'd go to lunch and I'd be drunk and my boyfriend at the time was starting to like get on my case about it and my parents were starting to catch on. I mean, I wasn't doing anything with my life and so it was hard not to catch on. Um, And I remember it was Mother's Day and I'd been drinking alcohol consistently for like five months. Um, So I was like physically addicted to it at that point, but I didn't know what that meant or that there could be... Uh, consequences medically from that. Um, And so I remember it was Mother's Day and I didn't want to drink that day and I'd never tried not to drink. And I went to meet my mom for dinner at like Chapala's and some Mexican restaurant. And I remember I walked in and then I don't remember anything else. And I woke up at Riverbend Hospital and I'd had a seizure And I remember they prescribed me with benzos and I was on benzos for a few weeks and then I went back to drinking and it talks about it in the AA Big Book about and more about alcoholism where it says like, you know, we tried drinking beer only. We limited the number of drinks. We drank only at home, like all these different methods. I did all of those methods with like the part that they forgot to add, which is like I also tried marijuana maintenance, (laughs) um, which didn't work because... I, You know, marijuana didn't have a lot of consequences for me, but whenever I'd smoke it, I would think I could be, like, I could feel so much better than this. I could do so many more things. Like, why would I just do this? At this point, Kimber's family was done. I wasn't able to attend school. I wasn't able to have a job. I was just able to drink all the time. And I remember them telling me, You know, if you don't get it together, like, we're going to take away your car. We're going to take away this house that we bought you. We're not going to support you financially. Otherwise, like, but if you want us to continue doing that, you need to go to treatment. Um, And I remember thinking, like, I didn't want to be sober. Um, Well, sober from alcohol and marijuana, at least. But I was like, this will be good. I'll get a break. You know, I've had some medical problems from drinking. Like, this will you know i can just be dry for a month essentially and then go back to it and i'll be able to have a better time drinking or smoking pot i definitely thought i could smoke pot after treatment <laughs> um and then i went to treatment at serenity lane actually and i was the youngest person in the treatment center i was 19 years old there were some like younger women there at the time they were in their mid 20s and um I was in an all-women's group at Serenity Lane, and I remember I ended up having to spend five days in detox. Um, that's how physically addicted I was to alcohol, um, and it was that was just like the most one of the most like physically painful things I've ever been through is detoxing off of that. Even though they gave me Librium and stuff t- to support me through my detox, I was just in so much like emotional pain, physical pain. Um, but this treatment center was interesting, right? Because I like. I gained a lot of self-knowledge, right, about, like, what addiction was and what it could do to you and how it, like, can negatively affect your life and other people's lives. And then I remember, like, we'd do this thing every evening where we'd all, like, as a group play catchphrase. And I remember laughing, like, harder than I'd ever laughed and thinking, like, that I could never remember a time where I had laughed like that. Um, And I started to slowly, like, as I was in in Serenity Lane, want sobriety. And the people I was with, I was really lucky to be in there with them because they all wanted sobriety. And so it kind of just attracted me to this thing.
0: Kimber had a great experience in treatment. She developed a strong rapport with her counselor. She was surrounded by people doing the deal, and she was learning a lot about her addiction. She'd made a good
1: start, but she had a few more lessons to learn. I thought that self-knowledge would keep me sober. um, And I was convinced that I still had this idea that I could do, you know, sobriety by myself. Like, I hadn't fully conceded to this idea that, you know, maybe I wasn't the expert on my own life um, and maybe I didn't have the solution for this on my own power. And I remember going, like, you know, completing IOP. And I would do the, like, minimum amount of meetings. I think they require you to do two meetings a week when you're an outpatient. Um, and then I got, you know, I started recovery support. And I remember I ended up getting a lung infection. And I went to see my doctor. And I, I told him straight off the bat. I was like, I'm an addict. I can't have narcotics. Um I'm, I'm not available for that. Like, you can prescribe me anything else, but nothing that's, like, addictive. And I remember the doctor was like, well, can you have codeine? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely I can take codeine for my lung infection. Um, and I brought that codeine home, and I took the prescribed amount. And 20 minutes later, I had this thought that I didn't feel better. Well, pain medication, if you take it as prescribed, isn't supposed to solve all your problems. It's supposed to minimize the pain. Um So next thing I know, I'm sipping off this bottle of codeine, and probably within a day I had finished this bottle of codeine, and I had another refill, so I went and got it refilled, and then I finished that bottle of codeine, and I went back to the pharmacy to get another refill, and the pharmacist said, you don't have another refill, and I said, basically, like, you can give me a bottle of codeine, or I'm going to fucking kill you, and they called the cops, and I had to leave. Um... And I called my old drug dealer and was like, hey there, I have this lung infection and I really need some opiates and they're not willing to. And that started a four month relapse. Um, and during that time, I shut. I mean, that was the most isolated I have ever been. Um, I didn't drink alcohol, um, but I was strictly on an opiate bender um, doing Oxycontin every day. Um, And I remember every single day, for that four months, I would wake up and say, I'm not going to use, I don't want to use, I'm not going to use today, and I would.
0: It is really important to know that Kimber's experience is not uncommon for people who complete treatment. While relapse is not always a part of someone's recovery experience, it certainly can be. Kimber's relapse took her to some dark and lonely places, but it was where she needed to go to find her true bottom.
1: Talk about, like, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, like, nodding off in your house day after day by yourself, like, pissing yourself. like. I would, like, smoke cigarettes in my house. Like, at one point, I remember lighting my couch on fire and waking up and being afraid, being like, I'm going to stop using. I really am. And then i just use, you know. Um, how I ended up getting off the opiates is kind of a funny story. I remember um, the person I was buying them from sporadically moved to California and didn't tell me. Um, and so I tried to contact them, like, that whole day because I'd run out and you know, I called them probably like 17 times, showed up at their house. They weren't, I mean, they weren't there. That wasn't their house anymore. And I remember going down to this like notorious park in, you know, downtown Eugene that's known for like, you know, illicit drug use and just crazy shit. Um, and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to buy heroin and I'm going to, uh, shoot up heroin. Like, and that was my plan for the day. And I remember I went down there and I was in this, I didn't have shoes on. For some reason, I had managed to, like, put shoes on despite leaving my house. Um, I was in this robe that at one point in time had been uh, white, but I didn't—I was such a child, like, I didn't know how to do my laundry, so it turned blue, and it was, like, burned on the ends from, like, you know, me nodding out and lighting it on fire. Um, And I went down there trying to buy drugs, and nobody would even talk to me. It was like I had been— All of these things, you know, I had been like this really successful person. Like in high school, I played sports. You know, I wanted to like major in international studies. I wanted to be this like big, important person in the world. And I just had this moment where I was like these people that if I had seen even six months ago, like I would have crossed the street to like be away from them. Those people that I would have been afraid of won't even talk to me.
0: It's hard to imagine Kimber in the park in her robe and bare feet and not feel fearful for her. It was a low point after a series of low points. And yet, it was in that moment that she found herself ready to ask for
1: help. And I remember sitting on this curb and just kind of thinking, like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I can't buy drugs. Um, I'm just at this total loss. I can't look myself in the mirror, Um, you know. I'm a deadbeat, essentially, and the only person that I could think to call was this woman that I had been in inpatient treatment with, Kelsey. She's so wonderful, Um, and she had been the only person who had maintained a relationship with me through my relapse, and she knew I relapsed, and she never said anything. She still would, like, invite me over for dinners, invite me to hang out, invite me to go to AA meetings, and I knew in that moment that she was someone I could call, and I asked her, I called her and I said, I've not been sober for four months, I need help, like, what can like, you do to help me? And she took me to um, a young people's AA meeting that night, Saturday night, host of friends.
0: Over the next month, Kimber stayed close to home, hit meetings, and put together 30 days of sobriety. From there, she made the decision to move into a sober living
1: house that was just the best thing I could have done for myself at that time. I mean, I didn't know how to live, you know. Um, I got sober at 20 years old, and I'd used for pretty consistently for seven years. And so, I mean, my last, like, coherent memories were, like, me being on a playground or me being a kid. And so essentially how I felt was, like, I had woken up... um, at 20 years old with no life skills you know so these women really took care of me like they told me like what things were like good to eat like reminded me to shower like reminded me to like do my laundry and like take care of myself and um in that house I lived in they required you to either volunteer work or go to school and um I had some pretty severe depression initially and so I just volunteer um I do like um, different services like or in, U- in Eugene and, and I just started to build this like self-efficacy and these women when I was this like just depleted individual and had nothing to offer still loved me um, and all of those women did AA or NA um, and so if that's what they were doing that's what I wanted to do.
0: Following the example of her sober housemates and putting one foot in front of the other, Kimber made it through an entire year. She had proven to herself that she could stay sober. But then what?
1: When I was 18 months sober, I was doing good. I'd been participating in young people's AA. You know, um, I had like this huge friend group of women that really supported me, but I was still having some really negative coping skills. And it's in my life it stopped being about like the first year it was like I need to stay sober just no matter what like emotional sobriety I don't really give a shit about that right now because I'm just trying like not to fiend for like drugs and alcohol Uh, I'm just getting by that first year but that second year was more about like how do I live a happy useful life you know and that was like kind of my lesson for that next year um And it just doesn't fly to be a sober individual and be doing things that you would do in your addiction, you know, like having these like tumultuous and abusive romantic relationships that you would have in your addiction. Having those in sobriety does not feel the same. Um, And when I say it doesn't fly, like I don't mean with other people. I mean with yourself, you know. Um, Like it doesn't feel good anymore and you don't get the same thing out of it. And I was at a point where, you know, I'd gotten back with that that guy that I'd been with and it just got excessively and excessively worse. And our relationship was like a cop-out to not work on ourselves and it just got really unhealthy. And I was participating in a pretty serious eating disorder and thought that, you know, I would be able to maintain sobriety Kimber made the
0: difficult decision to end that relationship, and it was painful, but it was also progress. She was protecting her sobriety and putting her well-being first. A month after that, one of Kimber's best friends overdosed and died. It was Kimber who found the body.
1: It it was horrifying, right, because I was in this place of just so much emotional pain from the things in my own life and having a hard time staying sober but then seeing my friend die and basically being like this these are the consequences like these are the consequences of not doing the work and I began to seek out AA and spirituality in a way that like I never had before you know um I started listening to speaker tapes um and I went to a meeting probably every single day at 18 months sober um I remember kind of getting to this place in my program where I'd been going to the same meetings for so long and hearing the same people for so long that I I started to feel, like, disconnected um, during a time where I needed to feel the most connected because I was scared, you know. I was scared for my sobriety. And um, so these speaker tapes really, like, supported me. And I remember this one guy, his name is Bob D., you can look him up on YouTube. He's a wonderful, wonderful speaker. Um, he started talking about things that I'd never heard about, like emotional sobriety and, um, and, um, yeah, kind of, like, really, you know, providing examples of practicing these principles in all our affairs, and I remember I listened to this one tape by him where he talked about the difference between faith and trust, and, I was having a really bad day that that day I listened to it. And, I mean, this just totally revamped my sobriety and got me re-excited. But he talked about how, like, this analogy with this wheelbarrow and how you can, like, see someone get up on a tightrope and you know, they're saying they can push this wheelbarrow across the tightrope. And you can have all the faith in the world that like that person is able to do that. Um, But trust, trust is something different. Trust would be you getting in the wheelbarrow. And I remember my stomach dropped. And I remember thinking, as I heard him say that, that that was the part of my sobriety that I was missing, was the trust piece. You know, I had this faith that Alcoholics Anonymous worked, you know, but I still had that kind of terminal uniqueness, right, where I thought like, it's going to work for all these other people, but not for me. And really, like, the best thing that I can hope for is just physical sobriety. Like, I'm too crazy. I'm never going to get to a place where I'm going to have emotional sobriety or a spiritual connection or really work on some of these, like, inner demons that fed my addiction. It's like, I'm I'm basically doing harm reduction by staying sober, you know. But when I heard that, I realized that I hadn't been participating in trust. And, and I started you know, sponsoring differently. I started um, showing up for my program differently, and I was able to get through the grief and loss of my friend passing, like, totally sober.
0: The act of helping an alcoholic or addict strengthens your own recovery. And with the loss and trauma of recent events, Kimber got the gift of being able to help a lot of women. It was just what she needed.
1: And I remember, ironically, during that time, even though I was a total mess, um, I had I was sponsoring, like, ten women, which was totally crazy. I was just like, why do you want me to sponsor you? And, like, why now, you know? Like, I can't even keep my shit together. Like, I'm constantly crying. I'm like, you know, this loss has, like, re-triggered this trauma from you know, my friend passing when I was 16, and I'm having a hard time keeping it together. Um, And I remember this one day, one of the women, I still sponsor her now actually, she called me and she was having a relationship problem. And she was like, talking, 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 and then she stopped and she was like, I'm so sorry to be calling you and talking about this stupid relationship problem when you are, you know, grieving the loss of your friend. And I, I just fucking told her, I was like, I was like, don't you ever feel bad about calling me about your relationship problems? Because you talking to me about your pain is what's saving my life right now. When I love you first, then I'm kind of inherently you know, bringing that same love back to myself, you know, it's like, it's this weird thing that we can only get if we put it out, right? Um, and we can only kind of keep our sobriety if we try to give sobriety away. Um, and so that, those were some great lessons that, like, I learned during that time. Another crucial piece of her recovery that Kimber shared about
0: was her work with a therapist, it is common in recovery to seek professional clinical support, and her experience is worth noting.
1: I thought, you know, that 12-step programs would kind of be the solution to my problem. I found that's not true. Um, it talks about it in the big book about how, you know, we we seek those out, outside supports, like doctors and psychiatrists and therapists and all this stuff. And I saw it out of therapists, and I really lucked out with probably one of the best therapists in Eugene and he is still my therapist today. Um, and we got to do some of that, like inner work around, you know, the trauma I'd experienced. Cause when you're a female and you're a young female and you're in active addiction that provides like this huge, huge space for, uh, a lot of pain and like people, pr- you know, being predators. Um, and so I had a lot, I've had a lot to work through, you know, with, um, you know, the grief and loss of, you know, friends passing who've also had this disease, whether I was loaded at the time or not. And, um, you know, working through some of that family trauma and those old ideas of that I kind of bring into the world from like my upbringing or um, from what I've seen, you know. Um, And him and I began to like touch on some of the things that I'd never been able to touch on. And slowly but surely, like, I started to be shaped into this, like, functional, secure, and reliable human being. Getting sober at 20 has some unique
0: challenges. Even with so much wreckage at an early age, it can be hard to imagine spending the rest of your life without drugs and alcohol.
1: I was sober for my 21st birthday. You know, that was—and and I didn't handle that gracefully. You know, I wasn't, like— oh, it's my 21st birthday and I'm going to throw like a sober party and like do these positive things and be this positive person. It was like, no, I grieved on my 21st birthday. You know, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to celebrate. I was devastated that at 21 years old, like I couldn't drink, you know, um, on my 21st birthday. Um, And for a long time, I would have this kind of, I remember to have this thought process where I'd be like, you know, before I was 21, where I was like, I can't drink on my 21st birthday. Uh, I can't drink at my wedding. Like if I ever get married, like I can't drink like on this day or this time or for this future event. And it's like, and then I remember I shared that with my sponsor one time and she was like, you don't want to drink at your wedding. Like you would ruin the entire wedding. (laughs) Um, Or like, why would you want to drink on your 21st birthday? Like you're not going to remember it. And then that kind of like actual logical thinking of like oh yeah like I stopped drinking and using because it stopped being fun like it took that away from me and in fact like everything alcohol and drugs gave to me it also took away and then it took some more like I got sober young because I absolutely had to you know I mean I was having some serious medical complications from using substances you know um but also like I mean it's been such a huge privilege because there's some people that come in that, like, can't relate, you know, to anybody else. But I can say, first time I ever tried to get sober, I was 19, and then I got sober at 20, and I've been able to stay sober until now, you know? I mean, I'm about to come up on six years of sobriety, and that, I mean, that's nuts. And and, and sobriety hasn't been— um, wonderful the whole time. Like, I don't want to, like, put that illusion out there that you get sober and it's easy. It's like, no, that was not my experience. I had a lot of trauma to work through. I had a lot of, like, deep inner work to work through. Um, And my willingness to do those things fluctuated from year to year.
0: Kimber shared what her recovery practice looks like today and what's
1: working for her. I have my daily uh, spiritual practice Um, So I wake up in the morning and immediately meditate for 15 minutes Um, and then I get on my knees and I pray and then I have this prayer book that one of my best girlfriends bought for me and it has all these wonderful prayers and so I'll usually like do a prayer and then read a prayer and and I set my intentions for the day, you know, And, and that doesn't mean because I set my intentions that my day won't get off kilter, you know. But I very much operate under this idea that like if people don't know what's going on with me, then they don't know how to help me, and that actually like isolation is the is my disease, and so like the tools that I use is I have, you know, I don't have like a hundred friends. I mean, when you stay sober for five plus years, you a lot of your friends like don't also don't stay sober, or they relapse, or they die, or they move away, or they have families. But I have like a few, you know, kind of women in my toolbox that they need to know what's going on with me at all times, you know, Um, and that when they ask me, how are you doing today, that I tell them, you know, Um, and so I have my people, some of which are in Alcoholics Anonymous and some of which aren't, you know, Um, and they provide different perspectives, you know, Um, so I kind of have that tool where I'm, I'm just very honest with like my safe people, I guess, and then my daily spiritual practice, I... You know, I, I participate in therapy once a week. Um, I have to do that because of my trauma, you know, um, otherwise it sneaks up on me. Um, and, you know, I have a job that is very consistently traumatic, too. So I have some new traumas coming up and that I get to work through. And um, I guess for me, my biggest tool that I can use, like, moment to moment is space, right? Because I... I want to react all the time. I mean, for my whole life, I've been controlled by these extreme emotions, you know, of insecurity or jealousy or anger or resentment, you know, and, and I would just act on them. Like when I'd have a feeling I'd act on it. And when I'd have a feeling I'd drink about it or use about it or whatever. And so for me, it's like that part where it talks about like, we pause when agitated. And like, if I'm not like right in my head, and I'm not coming correct, like when I'm, Talking to you, it's like I need to step away and like breathe for a second. And I need to do that for however many seconds I need to, and that's okay, you know? Whereas before I felt like, oh, if you don't respond right away to this, you know, person who's upset you, like you're not advocating for yourself or you're not getting your point across. And it's like I can always argue with people later, like when I'm in a better headspace and when I can actually like provide something positive to the situation. In
0: recovery, Kimber has accomplished a lot of things. She recently purchased her own home, is preparing to apply for a master's program, is of service in her community, and continues to sponsor other women. And when it comes to placing herself in the wheelbarrow of trust, she's ready to go.
1: absolutely, 100% trust myself and my judgment. Um, And not only that, but I like myself today. I know exactly what I deserve today. And like today and every day, I do everything I can to be more powerful, you know? Because as a woman, and like as a woman in recovery, I mean, we get these horrible ideas about ourselves, right? And we get these horrible ideas about the world and then, Our society is constantly telling us, you know, this stuff like you're too big, you're too small, you're too loud, be quieter, like fit into this box. I mean, that was my eating disorder in a nutshell is like I wanted to literally physically take up less space because that is what I had been told my whole life is that you don't get to take up space. Now I do everything I can to take up as much space as I want to and be like as powerful as I feel like I am on a given day.
0: for tuning in this week we hope you enjoyed this episode of Voices of Recovery thank you to our guest Kimber H our theme music was composed by Sammy Gallon. recording and editing by Thaddeus Moore at Sprout City Studios written by Monique Danziger that's me <laughs> and hosted by me Erica Toey if you liked the episode please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts it helps other people find the show If you'd like to learn more about our alumni program or be a guest on the podcast, go to serenitylane.org forward slash alumni. See you next time.